We are working our way through the letter to the Philippians for our summer sermon series. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open to the letter to the Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use one of the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, or the passage is also printed for you in the worship guide. So we have you covered one way or another. Uh, What we have established so far in our series is that the letter to the Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter around 62 AD while under house arrest. He did not know eventually what his outcome would be, whether he would be released or whether he would be executed. And so he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, One thing that we've noted already in our series is that um, Philippi was the first uh, location in Europe to receive the good news of Jesus, to hear the good news proclaimed. And so Paul writes to this church to encourage them. It's very clear, um, we see in several places throughout this letter, that there was a a special partnership between Paul and this church. The the church at Philippi had really partnered with Paul in his ministry um, to encourage him. Uh, Financial support was included. We'll eventually see that in chapter 4. And Likewise, Paul invested in them. And so there was a partnership in the gospel that they shared. In chapter 1, which we completed last week, um, we've, we touched on a couple themes. One was this theme of partnership in the gospel, how uh, God calls us as brothers and sisters of Jesus to live out the gospel together. It's a, a shared work that we have been given. Uh, in um, God's mission in the world. We've also, along the way, uh, talked about suffering. Because Paul is suffering, right? He's writing while under house arrest. Um, at various times in his, his ministry, he's been beaten in prison. This isn't the first time. And so he is suffering. But we find a man who is suffering well, who is really leaning into Jesus and all of Jesus's benefits. And he's identifying with Jesus' suffering. And what becomes clear is that through that, Paul is increasingly coming to know Jesus more. And that's what he wants for this church that he writes to. Well, chapter one um, has been really um, setting up chapter two. And this passage that we come to this morning, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is quite possibly a passage of scripture that you are familiar with. It's a powerful passage. It's a a beautiful passage. Um, Some have said that it actually was an ancient poem or hymn that was possibly sung in the early church. So I want to go ahead and read this for us. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted, on, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, be present with us now by your Spirit. Teach us from your Word. Change us by your Word for our good and your glory, we pray. Amen. So like most people uh, around the world, uh, I'm guessing that to some degree or another, you were captivated and paying attention to the story of the wild boar soccer team. Those 12 boys uh, in Thailand who um, were trapped in a cave for over two weeks. Uh, I I know that I, for one, was every day um, refreshing news stories, um, looking for the next update, um, really pulling for them and hoping, obviously, that they all would be safely rescued from this cave. And they were, right? We can praise God for that, something to celebrate for sure. And what a rescue mission it was. There were around a thousand people who participated in one way or another in causing this rescue to be successful. But it didn't come without cost. Maybe you heard this. One former Thai Navy diver sadly died while helping with the rescue. He was retired and yet decided to come and help on this mission by delivering air tanks in the cave. And on his way out, he lost air and lost consciousness and passed away. But what is remarkable to me is, that, is the impact that these kinds of stories, particularly now focusing on this uh, Thai diver who gave his life essentially for these uh, children, the impact that it has on us as a people. There is something about sacrifice that is beautiful to us, that is powerful to us, that captivates us. And it was captured, I, I think, incredibly well by um, someone else who was helping with the rescue. He said this, I can guarantee that we will not panic. We will not stop our mission. We will not let the sacrifice of our friend go to waste. You hear that? An acknowledgement of the sacrifice. Basically, a, a, an acknowledgement that this sacrifice we consider to be so powerful, so impactful, that we will not let it go to waste. Many of you know um, that back in the spring, I completed the Harry Potter series for the first time. Uh, and I'll try not to, I got in trouble last time because I gave away something um, toward the end and somebody had not reached that point yet. But give me a break, the series is 20 years old now. <laughs> but Early on in the first book, I don't remember if it's early on in the book, but in, early on in the series, in the first book, basically there's a statement that is made. And that statement is that self-sacrificing love is the greatest power in the universe. And that's really um, the theme of the remainder of the Harry Potter series. And more importantly, 
It's actually the theme of the biblical story, and it is definitely the theme of our passage this morning. Self-sacrificing love is the greatest power in the universe. That's why somebody like that man would respond to the sacrifice of the Thai Navy SEAL, because it's powerful, and we all know it. But in reality, when it comes to day-to-day living, there's a tension. Because abstractly, in general, we all are captivated by the power and idea of self-sacrifice, like we've been talking about. However, at the same time, when it comes to -to day-to-day living, it is so hard for us to actually display that in our own lives. In other words, it is hard for us to sacrifice for others. This flies in the face of what our culture is all about and the messages that we get. Me, me, me. I, I, I. It's all about me and my needs, my wants. And the biblical story, the Apostle Paul in this passage presents us with something very different. And what we're going to find in this passage is a power to move through, to move beyond this bentness to live for self. I want to look at the passage um, in two different sections. Um, And we're going to go in reverse order. Um, Verses 6 through 11, so the second part of this passage, focuses on the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And the first five verses focus more on the story of ourselves, the story of us. And so we're going to start by looking at the story of Jesus, and then we're going to look at how the story of Jesus shapes, should shape our story as his people. This is an ancient poem or hymn. That's pretty cool. I mentioned that um, before uh, I read the passage. Um, most biblical scholars say that in some form, this was a poem or a hymn that was sung or read aloud in early Christian community. And it's a poem or hymn that traces the story of Jesus, his incarnation, that is him taking on bodily form, his death, his resurrection and ascension. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That word form means the nature or, or character of something. So in other words, Jesus possesses the characteristics and qualities of that thing. The eternal Son, that is Jesus, was with the Father from all time, before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. This is mind-boggling stuff. We um, talked about aspects of this in our last sermon series called Flourishing, because we looked at a few uh, chapters in the Gospel of John, which really kind of took us into the depths of the Trinity, This idea that the God of the Bible is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to, well, first of all, I didn't attempt to explain it then, and if I did, I probably didn't do a good job, so I'm not going to begin to try to explain it again. Um, But this touches on some of that. We have to remember that this is who God is. And Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, it was not something to be kept and exploited for his own benefit or his own advantage. And and literally, the word has in mind not something to be grasped or captured as in a battle. Now, think about this with me. Jesus enjoyed 
the prized possession of equality with God. And he was entitled to hold on to it forever, for all eternity, was he not? Yet he did not insist on retaining that privilege. Why? Well, not just because, but for our benefit. Jesus had in view others. Jesus had in view us. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. This is the Bible. This is the heart of Christian theology, that the God of the universe, Jesus is equated with God, was willing to condescend. He was willing to descend into our world, the world that he had made to be good, but had been corrupted by the very people that he came to sacrifice himself for. This is astonishing truth. And yet, like I said, this is the heart of the Christian story, that the God of the universe made himself nothing, essentially, taking on our form to come and serve us. He had every right to stay comfortably where he was, in his position of power. And yet love drove him to a position of weakness for us. He let go of the high position, right? He let go of the high position for the sake of bringing good to others. This is the idea that Paul has in mind. And when we um, translate it in a few moments to the story of Jesus in the story of us, this is what drives that story. Now, Jesus is more than just an example for us. Jesus is our Savior. He's our rescuer. But his rescuing work, his work of salvation on behalf of his people also serves as a pattern or a model for how his people are to relate to the world around them. In verse 8, Paul captures Jesus' death by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, this, this is, it goes to the next level, doesn't it? All right, it's one thing, it's astonishing to think of the God of the universe condescending to us, taking on human form to identify and relate to people that he made in his image. But it goes beyond that. He gave up his life. He came, made himself obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Crucifixion, you probably have heard this um, from time to time, was the ultimate indignity. Excruciating pain was felt on the cross. And not only excruciating, excruciating pain, but incredible humiliation and vulner, vulnerability. The God of the universe on the cross, not only in pain, but um, vulnerable and humiliated for all who looked on. But the story does not end there. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When that, that language of exaltation, um, it, it literally means God the Father super exalted Jesus. He super exalted him. Why? Because now we're getting into the heart of this story of Jesus. Comes back to that statement that I made um, earlier. Self-sacrificing love is the greatest power in the universe. 
Jesus, having accomplished his mission, having accomplished self-sacrificing love, God the Father super exalts him, gives him the place that is above all places, the name that is above all names, so that he might be acknowledged, that he might be worshipped, that he might be adored and praised. What's the application here? Because Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, he's not just giving the Philippians a theology lesson. Now, theology is really important, but theology actually is only really important when it is applicable, when it's relatable, when it's transferable. So Paul is not just simply writing to give the Philippians a theology lesson. Where is Paul? Paul is under house arrest. Paul doesn't know whether he's going to be executed or released. The church in Philippi is experiencing forms of persecution. They, they know what it is to suffer as well. There's no time for abstract theology or doctrine as far as Paul's concerned. And so that's not his purpose here. This presentation of Jesus, this presentation of the story of Jesus is intended to cause the Philippians to worship. It's intended for their hearts to be melted by the self-sacrificing love that Jesus has for them so that they might be secure in that, so that they might be transformed by that, and so that they might move out into the world seeking to reflect that self-sacrificing love to a world that desperately needs to witness it. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Why is that? It's because he is God. Um, When you go back and and you research this, um, this idea of Jesus being understood as God in the early church, um, one of the oldest surviving sermons that was ever preached in the Christian church uh, after New Testament times opened with this line, we ought to think of Jesus Christ as God. One of the oldest surviving accounts of the death of a Christian martyr contained this, it will be impossible for us to forsake Christ or to worship any other. For him being the Son of God, we adore. And the oldest surviving pagan report about the church describing Christians um, gathering before sunrise included this, they sang hymns to Christ as God. The point here is that Jesus was understood to be God by the early church. This is why Paul was eventually willing to give up his life. It's why many of the apostles were. It's why many of the early disciples in general were, because it wasn't just a feel-good message. It wasn't just an abstract spiritual message. They believed that there was historical validity to who Jesus was. They believed that he really lived, that he really died, and that he really rose again, therefore demonstrating himself to be God and therefore is worthy of worship. Now, that might be hard for you to believe. I understand that. It's hard for me to believe. Again, these are remarkable truths that we're talking about. The God of the universe, condescending, taking on human form, that's mind-blowing enough, but he's willing to go to um, become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. It is hard to believe. Yet this is what the early church believed. Something happened. And think about this, if you're really struggling with, well, I, I don't know, how could Jesus really be God? Um, I, I just want to give you a, a little bit more to help you reflect on this. 
Before Jesus came onto the scene, there had been dozens of messianic movements that had preceded him. Um, They came and they went. And almost every time, the leader claiming to be the Messiah was killed, usually by execution. And every time, guess what would happen? The followers would go home and the movement would be over. Dead. End game, right? Something different happened with Jesus. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, what? Why? Why all of a sudden was it different this time around? There had been several examples, enough data, and yet this time around, there was something distinct, something different about Jesus in which his followers did not go home. Well, they did, um, but to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and then to be released into mission on behalf of the world. How did the church grow so quickly? What changed their worldview overnight? Hundreds of eyewitnesses maintained this testimony. And so the question that I want to really drive at is this. Who, whom or what do you worship? Well, how do you determine that? A, a practical way of maybe accessing that is what is most important to you? When you, you look at your life as a whole and you evaluate, you do some self-reflection, what do your priorities indicate? What is it that you value the most? What do you invest most of your time, your energy, your, your money into? That probably will help you to get to the answer of that question of who or what you worship. Jesus alone is worthy of worship. There's a, a beautiful poem written by a man named Edward Shalito, who was a minister in England during World War I. Um, and this poem that he wrote was called Jesus of the Scars. And the whole thing is good, but I'm just going to read um, uh, toward the end of it. We actually have these few lines up on the screen. Let me see where it's starting again on the screen. I'll just read it from there. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The reason that you can and should worship Jesus is because he, has a God, he is a God who has wounds. He relates to you in your suffering. He relates to you in your wounds. And what do you, deep down inside, what do you want more than anything else in life? If you're like me, it's that in your innermost vulnerabilities, knowing the truth of your whole story and everything that is in there and everything that that it encompasses, you want somebody to sacrifice for you. You want there to be somebody that loves you so deeply, so immensely, so powerfully, that they would be willing to give up their life for you despite you. Jesus is the God with wounds. Let's now talk about the story of Jesus in us, his people, focusing on verses 1 through 5. Paul begins, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is Paul after here? 
Well, in the, at the end of chapter 1, we saw Paul already, we saw that he already touched on this theme of unity. And it seems like that's what he's driving again here, at again here in the beginning of chapter 2. He wants the Philippians to be unified, unified in their affection, unified in their love, unified in their joy. Why is this ultimately? Well, one, it's so that they might know um, the completeness of Jesus uh, among themselves, but also so that they might have a unified witness to the world around them. Consider again Paul's circumstances. Part of what he's doing in writing letters like this is to disciple these followers of Jesus. Paul knows that it is harsh out there in the Roman Empire. He knows um, firsthand that it is not easy to maintain faith in Jesus in a world of hostility. And so he is wanting to, he's wanting to encourage them, but to disciple them more deeply, more fully in Christ. And what better way to do that than to immerse them in the story of Jesus again and then to turn that around and to say, may this story essentially be your story. May this story be the story that shapes your life together as his followers. Now, an important point has to be made. Hopefully, it's already been clear, and I already, I already said this. We need to be careful with this idea, this language of imitating Jesus. There is a sense in which we are called to imitate Jesus. That is partially what's going on here in this passage, but we can't imitate Jesus, right? It comes up short to a certain extent. I can uh, try to sacrifice myself for any number of people, but my sacrifice is not going to accomplish the forgiveness of sins for them. And even before we get to that point, I don't know that when it really comes down to it, if I would be willing to sacrifice myself because of my selfishness. We are not Jesus. Can, we, can I get an amen? Amen? Just want to make sure you're with me. It's a very basic point. We all need to be on the same path. Uh, we need to be in agreement on that. But we are called to follow Jesus' pattern. His uh, ministry in the world serves as a model for us. And that's how Paul is using the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's imitating the pattern of Jesus, which is what? A pattern of downward mobility. He, 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 I think it's most clear in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's clear, and that's hard. At least it's hard for me. What, what are you struck with when you hear those verses? Because basically, you are being called to lay down your life for others, to serve others, to not relate to others out of conceit or rivalry, but to actually consider others better than yourself and to seek their interests above your own. Maybe one reaction or response you have is, well, I don't know about that. There's a fine line because... You know, if, if I do that too much, I might allow myself to be walked all over. Now, that's not what Paul has in mind. But before I address that, um, why, why, why do you think that is your initial 
response or reaction? Could it be that that is your initial response or reaction because you want to protect yourself from actually having to live this kind of life in service to others? Now, Paul is not talking about allowing yourself to be walked all over. Our problem, I think, a lot of times is that we equate humility with weakness. You ever find yourself basically concluding that or thinking that, that humility is a form of weakness? It's actually the opposite. Humility is a form of strength. It actually takes incredible strength to be humble because it goes against everything inside of you. How do we naturally want to be and live? We want to think of ourselves as better than others. We want to um, look to our own interests. We want to relate to others out of rivalry uh, and conceit because we make everything into a competition. See, that all comes natural to us. That's easy. It's hard to work against that. How do we work against it? Well, that's why Paul gives us a reminder of the story of Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember what Jesus did for you. You have no bragging rights. There's no room for pride. You can't come to the table and say, well, Jesus did a, a little bit, but I did most of it, or even you did a little bit. And Jesus did most. Jesus did all of it. When you didn't deserve it, when you weren't looking for it, Jesus self-sacrificed himself for you. And this is how and why Jesus is unique. Jesus didn't come up short. Jesus, in those moments as he was moving to the cross, in his moments of vulnerability and honesty, remember, Father, take this cup from me, but if it be your will... And he continued on the path, the interests of others in mind. Humility is not hating yourself. It's not what humility is. That's actually, a, 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 that's actually another form of self-centeredness. You see, we, we, distort all, we, we have a tendency to distort these words and these concepts Humility is not a form of self-centeredness. It's a form of other-centeredness. And like I said, it takes incredible strength to move in that direction. So what about application here? Taking the story of Jesus and making it our story. Well, we have to work on this together. Paul has a community in mind. Yes, he's writing to individuals, but this letter would have been read in the assembly. This letter, the, the yous are basically all plural. He is writing to a community, and he wants them to practice this. This is what he, he's calling them to. Here's, he, he's casting a vision. Here's what I want you to practice at. Here's what I want you to train in. If you want to really become fully human, if you want to thrive as a human being, being all that God made you to be, this is the path. Now, it's a path of pain. It's a path of suffering, but that is the case for all good things in life, right? But we have to work on this together. So how does the gospel become concrete in our community life? It's by making Christ real to one another. See, this is where we are taking the story of Jesus and transferring it. There are all kinds of ways that we come to know Jesus more deeply. Primarily, 
through his word, how he has revealed himself to us, um, through the Lord's Supper that we will get to partake of in a few moments. Those are the primary ways, these means of grace um, that Jesus has given to us to reveal himself. But we also make Christ known to one another in our community life. Think about your life in the church, if you've had exposure to the church. Um, It's probably the case um, where you could point to specific times or instances when somebody served you. They, in a way, laid down their life for you. They considered your interests uh, more important than your own. How did you respond to that? Hopefully with gratitude and thanksgiving. But it was also probably the case that it gave you a little bit better understanding of the gospel because you got to see it fleshed out by a brother or sister in Jesus. I think this is what Paul has in mind. May we give one another daily, regular reminders of who Jesus is and what he's like. It's going to be imperfect, for sure. That's why we can't imitate Jesus perfectly. He's our rescuer and our savior. But we certainly can move in that direction of seeking to make Christ real to one another. Um, I want to share this quote with you. It comes from a woman named Tish Harrison, Harrison Warren. Um, She says, the temptation in our moment of history is abstraction, to proclaim a love for the world while hating actual people we know. I almost don't want to even give any commentary on it. I want to leave it there. But this quote has been wrecking me. I like to talk about loving the people in my neighborhood like to talk about loving the people in the world. You know, that's what we're called to as Christians. You know, and it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, oh, self-sacrifice, that's what we're called to. Go out of this place after the service and sacrifice yourself for others. Lay down your rights, your privileges for others. But guess what? A couple hours from now on your way home, um, tomorrow, you're going to rub shoulders with actual people. And actual people are annoying, aren't they? They're annoying. They're obnoxious. They don't always do what we want them to do. Oh, drives me crazy, right? Some of you are sitting um, there thinking, yeah, I think that about you. (laughs) But the point is, do you love the actual people around you? That's how we'll determine as a church family how well we love our neighborhood, our city, our region, the world. Do we actually love each other? In the midst of all of our annoying traits, all of our difficulties, all of our own issues, do we actually love real people that God has brought into your life, has brought into your family? We also have this calling, though, to make Christ real to those on the outside. Um, I was thinking about this uh, this week. I'm pretty certain that it is the case that every adult that I have baptized um, at City Church over the past eight years has come to faith in Christ through a process, and that process, uh, a big part of that process was experiencing the love and care of Christians. 
That, that shouldn't be surprising. Remember back to our flourishing series, Jesus actually said this multiple times throughout uh, his ministry. They will know me. They will know the reality of the gospel by what? Your love, your love for one another. And so we're called to make Christ real to those on the outside. And this is the posture that we are to have. Philippians 2 paints a picture of our posture. It's a posture that none of us want to take because it's a posture that calls us to lay down our rights, our privileges, to lay down our very selves in order to serve others. But that is what the church in its beauty, at its best, has always been. Scott Sauls is a pastor uh, in our denomination, and he says this. This is the last quote we have up here. He says, Christianity always flourishes most as a life-giving minority, not as a powerful majority. It is through subversive, countercultural acts of love, justice, and service for the common good that Christianity has always gained the most ground. Go, I mean, do, review church history. This is absolutely true. When the church is at its worst throughout church history, it's when it seeks after power and privilege as opposed to following in the footsteps of Jesus and demonstrating self-sacrificing love to the world. We have no shot at this with our own resources. Even as I'm up here um, sharing this with you, I'm thinking to myself, this sounds really good. Not necessarily my sermon. I don't know how my sermon is. But these thoughts that are in my head um, that I have notes for um, sounds really good. Sounds beautiful. It, It sounds grand. I mean, Probably none of you would argue against it, but we have no shot at it with our own resources and our own power. Our selfishness has to be eroded over time for us to live this way, relate to one another in this way, and relate to the world around us. Consider how far Jesus came to reach you. Consider how far Jesus came to reach you. That's where we get the power. That's where we get the motivation. And that's why Paul presents us with this two-part story, the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus in us, because we don't have a shot at this with our own resources, but in Jesus, we have all the resources that we need. And so we come back to the story of Jesus time after time after time again. We come back to the gospel. Consider how far Jesus came to reach you. Dependency is at the heart of the Christian life, depending on Jesus for everything. So as I reached the end of the Harry Potter series back in the spring, very last book, um, may have been the second, third, fourth, fifth chapter to the end, I obviously don't remember off the top of my head, And if I ruin something for you, I'm sorry, but again, it's been 20 years. And this is, it's so hard to to describe um, in its power, but it's been progressing toward this moment. And Harry, the main character, finally realizes, I have to sacrifice myself. That's how this has to go down. That's the only way. That's what has to happen. And so there's these powerful scenes of him 
um, making his um, entry into the forbidden forest where he's going to face his arch enemy um, and allow himself to simply be killed and sacrifice for others. And as I read this, there, were, there was more than one occasion when I put the book down and I teared up and thought, that is beautiful. That is powerful. Why did I have that response or the reaction? Because self-sacrificing love is the greatest power in the universe. It's captivating. Deep down inside, it's what we all want. We want to receive that from others, from Jesus. But deep down inside, we also want to live that way, don't we? We do, and that's what was happening to me in those moments of reading this, this story and reflecting on the life of Jesus, his story, and me thinking to myself, oh, I come up so short, but I want more of this for myself. I want to be a person who is willing to demonstrate increasingly self-sacrificing love for those around me, not out of duty or obligation, but because it's the good life. It's what I was made for. And as I learned to do that more and more, I experienced the power and presence of Jesus more and more. Do you not want that deep down inside? You do. You do. And at the same time, for some of you, you're going to walk out of the building this morning and forget all about this. And you're going to do it on purpose, some of you. You're going to do it on purpose because even in this moment, you're torn. Part of you says, Yes, you're speaking to me. Self-sacrificing love is the greatest power in the universe. I want that for myself. I want to receive it, and I want to live it out, but I am so selfish. And I've done so many selfish things, and I'm doing so many selfish things, and so that's just not for me. I want to extend an invitation to you if that's where you are. Don't walk out of the building and forget about all of this. And don't walk out of the building focusing on yourself and your ability as to whether or not you can live like this. Walk out of the building immersed in the story of Jesus. Walk out of the building in love with Jesus. Walk out of the building overcome by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus that is powerful and beautiful and can change your life even in your selfishness and shape you and form you into a person who lives this way in the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. We believe that you are God. You have all the power in the universe, and you are able to do the things that we have been challenged by in your word this morning. So come by your spirit into our lives and do them for your glory, our good, but also for the good of the world. We pray in your name. Amen.